This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. This is the second part of today's show and we're so glad you stayed with us. New mothers face a barrage of confounding decisions during the life cycle of early motherhood. Should they change their diet or mindset to conceive, exercise while pregnant? Should they opt for a home birth or head for a hospital? Whatever advice they follow, they will be sure to find plenty of medical expertise from health practitioners to social media influencers telling them that they're making a series of mistakes. In this part of today's show, we're going to be speaking with two women who are, in no particular order, scholars, mothers, and givers and receivers of unsolicited and solicited expertise. One of them ingested Robitussin to get pregnant. The other had four years of infertility treatment. One had gestational diabetes, while the other had a nausea-free pregnancy. One used Pitocin while in labor. Both had an epidural. One had labor with a doula and midwife while the other's baby was resuscitated in the first hour because of an incorrect breastfeeding position. Bottom line, these two women know exactly what they're talking about, and we're going to hear from them the storied history of mothering advice in the media, from newspapers, magazines, doctor's records, and personal papers from the 19th century all the way up to today's websites. I'm Armin Brott. We'll start talking about why you're doing it all wrong when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Excuse me, do you know how to get to Maine and Maple? Do you have these in a seven and a half? How's that cooked? Can I get that shipped overnight? Is there a direct flight? How long does the warranty last? What's your soup of the day? How do you change the ringtone? Does it come in blue? Does this bus stop at Elm Street? We ask questions everywhere in life. Is it raining out? Uh, what time's the meeting? How much does this cost? Does it have four-wheel drive? Have we met before? What's my account balance? Yet somehow, when we get to the doctor's office... Any questions? Um, no. We clam up. Ask questions. What is this test for? Are there any side effects? When do I get my results? Questions lead to better health care. Go to AHRQ.gov for a list of 10 questions everyone should know. Questions are the answer. Public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guests for this part of today's show are Bethany Johnson and Margaret Quinlan, who are the co-authors of You're Doing It Wrong, Mothering, Media, and Medical Expertise. Bethany and Maggie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank us. you. It's an honor. Thank you. So let's talk about the whole idea of you're doing it wrong. I mean, that's, in a way, it could apply to almost every single book and I'm saying almost because there are a few that are not that way, but almost every single book that's about parenting because people somehow walk away from a lot of parenting books thinking that if they don't do X or Y that their kids are going to grow up to be serial killers or if they do X and Y but in the wrong order that something terrible will happen or, or you know, if they do too much of X and not enough of Y, you know, whatever. It, it's just it's a horrible thing that, that, that goes on there. 
How did you happen mm-hmm. to to decide to confront that so head on? Well, I think we both have personal experience with it, and I think you know I'll let Maggie speak to this in just a moment. And I, I think when we were going through conception um, and pregnancy and having children, and we both have two children um, under five at this point, um, we realized, you know, we, I study the history of medicine, Maggie studies um, health communication, among other topics, and we found ourselves just by virtue of being in this stage of life, spending a lot of time on social media, and we realized that people had a lot of opinions about how to do things, and it seemed like no matter what we chose or wrestled with or thought about, we always would hear from someone some way that you're doing it wrong. And we've both read parenting books and articles and, you know, we're scholars. This is what we do. We, we read and research for a living. So we were hearing it a lot. And I think we both thought, you know, why, why are we still hearing this? And why have parents been hearing this for 150 years? And what does that mean? And what purpose does it serve? And how is it different or the same in social media today? Um, what do you think, Maggie? Yeah, and I think, you know, what was fun for us is that when we would find ourselves in moments of crises going through these different stages that we talk about, um, it was helpful to to look back at history. And, and Bethany, mm-hmm. um, as the historian, really taught me how to, to say, okay, we're telling women to do this or we're telling mothers or parents to, to do this today, and if we trace it back, you can see some of those same um, conversations that were happening in the 1800s and the 1900s in doctor's papers or in case books, um, you know, medical case books or newspaper articles that were giving these same messages. And we haven't really figured a way out of some of these conversations. And then when you go to social media, it just sort of explodes from there. (laughs) Well, what I'm Mm -hmm. curious about is we can look back at old 1950s editions of Life magazine and you see the full-page ads in there where smoking is recommended by doctors, and we can laugh at that because of what we know today. Do you think that, mm-hmm. that 20 years from now somebody's going to look at this book and say, what were they thinking? Because it, it, it seems that you know, the, the what's right seems to change so quickly. I would say that... Go ahead, Maggie. I would say that we're not, we're, we want to be clear that we were not, in this book, we're not telling anybody what's the right way. I think what our book hopes to do is to help unpack the messages that, that were given so that you can make the choices that you, that work for you or for your mm-hmm. family. Right. Um, and also that some of these aren't choices <laughs> for some, some people. And so to help yeah. you sort of think through what, you know, what you're going through. Well, yeah, you talk about in in one of the early chapters, you talk about a woman who is, you you set the scene where she's she's laying in bed with sunglasses on and red underwear and (laughs) and some weird thing because she's she's pregnant, but wants to watch the eclipse. I mean, (laughs) just to to talk about that a little bit, that's just such a bizarre little scene. That was an amazing story to come across because, um, I think that woman found herself in a place where many of us could find ourselves today. 
she in telling the story she was telling us this is ridiculous this is ridiculous that i was i was flabbergasted that i was getting this advice that people thought something could happen to my baby but she had had a tough pregnancy before she had had you know lost a pregnancy before and there's this moment where when you don't feel like you have any control over the outcome anything that people suggest somehow becomes plausible or you feel guilty if you don't take it on because you, you don't have control over the situation, right? So, so maybe wearing red underwear with a safety pin in it and being in the hallway in the center of the house where not any window could shine any light on you, the pregnant person, and all these things, somehow all of the talismans of history put up together that your family and your friends are telling you about, maybe if you do that, at least you can say you did something if something goes wrong. Even though she knew and felt like, none of these things would actually prevent um, something bad happening with her pregnancy. But those are moments where you feel like, well, I, I don't have any control, so this is all I have. Yeah. Um, and so she was so self-reflective in the middle of that. But, but we were also tracing how people were talking about this on social media. You know, and the question you just asked about 20 years from now, what I really hope someone gets from our book 20 years from now is a really great snapshot of what people were experiencing at the time mm -hmm. when they had these fears and these worries. Um, where were they getting their information from and how were they understanding who they were in the world and as parents and in their families in, in this historical moment? Well, let's, let's go back to pregnancy a little bit and have you talk about a couple of more things that are Maybe not as crazy as red underwear in the middle of a hallway with no light and a safety pin. And, <laughs> but what are some things that, that women are routinely doing or not doing for just, let's be honest, idiotic reasons? Um, well, okay, so here's something that sounds like good advice but doesn't actually work for everyone. So we asked a lot of people, what's the sort of wildest thing you've been told or, or sort of experienced during pregnancy? Um, and we had someone respond who has some, uh, Maggie, I think, would you say disabilities? Is that the word the person used? Um, it, 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 they were safer on a bicycle than walking. Um, there were some ambulatory issues, and so bicycling was a really safe mode of transportation for them. Well, then they got pregnant, and their doctors kept saying, don't ride a bicycle because that puts your baby at risk. But they fell because and continued to fall because they were told not to ride a bicycle. And so then they eventually just <laughs> said, you know what, I'm going to ride a bicycle because that's actually safer for me and my baby than walking. Um, but that definitely goes counter to advice many doctors would give pregnant people um, today. So one of the things we wrestled with is that um, that just doesn't work for everybody, and that's okay, and it's okay to realize that it's not going to work for you, even if it sounds good on the surface, and to make a choice that's actually better for you in the long run. Um, but that's really hard to do in, um, in the, in the you know, presence of a really confident friend or mother or medical yeah. provider. Um, well, I remember when, when I was an expectant father the first time around, the, uh, the OB that we were seeing was, was telling, uh, telling us that it was perfectly fine to eat sushi, and he happened to have, be a Japanese mm -hmm. guy, perfectly fine to eat sushi, mm -hmm. but a lot of other people were saying, oh, you can't eat sushi while you're pregnant, you're, you're putting your child at risk. And, 
that yeah. struck me as, as something similar. And I've heard from OBs who say, well, women are not supposed to change the cat litter, which makes sense. But yeah. what, what, you're, right. what you really shouldn't be doing is digging in the garden where there's a lot more cat litter or, well, not cat litter, but it's been used as cat litter. Um, mm-hmm. you know, there, there are a lot, of, a lot of things that are going on out there. Yeah, we talk in the chapter about people worrying about things that might actually not be a risk. You know, the sushi thing, like, well, there's a country called Japan that would beg to differ. And as far as I've checked, most of them do pretty well <laughs> in their pregnancies and eat sushi the whole way through. Um, but you could argue, hey, they, they have a much um, fresher fish supply or, you know, there's lots of different ways to approach it. But like one of the things Maggie said earlier um, something that we really struggled with was, you know, there's a lot of directives about avoiding toxins and pollution. Well, you know, if you work in a smelting factory, that's going to be harder for you to do. And also, it's really stressful to be feeling like it's on you to avoid atmospheric pollution when that's really a social issue that we really all need to be working on Mm -hmm. and it's not something one person can avoid during a pregnancy but you hear a lot about how bad this is for you and your the epigenetics of your baby but what are you know aside from living in a bubble the whole time you're pregnant talking with bethany johnson and margaret quinlan who are the co-authors of you're doing it wrong mothering media and medical expertise we're going to take a quick break when we come back we will keep talking to bethany and maggie you must be your fairy godmother. <laughs> yes. It doesn't take a fairy godmother to tell you that the right fit means everything. Good heavens, child. You can't go in that. Children under four foot nine need to be in a booster seat because they aren't ready for adult safety belts alone. Remember that four foot nine is the magic number and get your little pumpkin there safely in a booster seat. <laughs> oh, thank you. For more information, visit boosterseat.gov. This has been a message from the U.S. Department of Transportation and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Margaret Quinlan and Bethany Johnson, who are the co-authors of You're Doing It Wrong, Mothering Media and Medical Expertise. Maggie, you were just about to say something. Yeah, I think one thing is sometimes the tone of the advice given to women related to the topics that we talk about. Like, There's this one great example of, of in the book, what to do when you're expecting and you know, thinking about what to expect when you're expecting. And the if there's this one piece of advice telling women not to go for walks on their cell phone or to, to be, like, searching social media on their cell phone. And in 2019, to, to read that, you know, when, when you're pregnant, it, you know, just, like, did I really need that piece of advice? Like, did somebody really yeah. need that? Um, and so sort of the disciplining that, that happens for, you know, two women during these different time periods. That's the kind of advice that really should go to everybody, pretty much. I mean, you shouldn't be walking down the street on right. your cell phone. How many pedestrians right. are getting knocked over by cars for exactly that reason? So whether you're pregnant or not, I guess, yeah, the, I guess your, your point is that it doesn't need to be special advice for pregnant women. 100%. Right. Yeah. Right. So what, what's something... that we need to protect women more and, and that kind of stuff like gets, gets a little tough to hear. 
Yeah, because it gets to the point where you feel like you, you sort of can't do anything successfully. And, to you know, to your point, um, yeah, it's something everyone should be thinking about. And also we're kind of chuckling because a lot of the people that interact with a book like What to Expect are interacting with it on your phone. So they could feasibly be walking somewhere, reading not to walk somewhere on their phone, on their phone. Um, and so also some of this advice, you know, don't Google for medical advice or whatever that you, you all missed the boat on that 10 years ago. So let's skip that. And then let's realize what's actually happening, how people are actually getting their information, how people are exchanging and providing information to other people. Let's take that seriously. And then let's have a conversation about that. Well, let's talk about social media then, since both of you are, are in the middle of it up to your ears, and, and it's something that obviously people, as you said, are using continually. And so the, the, the recommendation to stay away from social media if you have a problem, to go in one ear and out the other, it's completely going to be ignored. So how do you, though, deal with the fact that if you limit yourself, as a lot of people do, to the first two or three things that pop up on Google – there, there's a, mm. I'm, I'm betting, I can't tell you statistically, but there's probably a 50-50 chance you're going to get some nut job telling you something that's completely wrong. How do you vet the information that you're getting is a more important question. One of the things that we saw um, is that people tend to actually get expertise from their peers now on social media in private mothers groups, um, sometimes in... Uh, private groups of, you know, high school classes or uh, people that are in infertility treatment, they often create a um, a shadow account is what they're usually called, but just an alternative account. And the, you know, the username says something about, you know, their infertility treatment journey, what they're hoping for with a year. Sometimes it has IVF or something. And there's a total alternate account and community that's created there. And there's very specific medical information and sometimes medicines exchanged. So one of the things we talk about in the book is that um, because we understand that that's actually how people are getting their information, we just um, remind people that confidence is not equivalent with um, knowledge. So if someone is very, very confident about something, that doesn't mean that the information is correct. Um, So throughout the book, we talk about ways to, you know, we talk about some of the things people might find, and then we actually unpack that, and we travel back in history to see where that actually came from, why people are saying it, and some ways they might want to be thinking through information that they come across. Maggie, do you agree? Uh, yes, I do. And, um, and you know, I've, I've found myself even, you know, struggling with some of the information that, that, you know, that I came across, I I was drinking these shakes while I was pregnant. And then I saw, you know, a post saying that those shakes had too much vitamin K that could potentially damage, you know, my, my, um, my, my baby's eyes. And, you know, so it's just, you know, and then I went to a medical professional to, you know, to ask about, you know, whether or not this is a good, good or not thing. Should I stop taking these shakes? And so, you know, it's, it's a lot of information to try to to make sense of and, you know, to figure out what, you know, what, what to do and, you know, what, who are the, what sort of camp you're in for, um, you know, for making sense of the information. 
You know, I, I try on the yeah. show to keep things as, as apolitical as possible, but one of the things that is going to be extremely difficult for people to decipher properly is information about vaccinations. Mm -hmm. And there are people on both sides who are quite confident, and that, again, doesn't make them right. right. Uh, I mean, I happen to right. have a, a strong position on this that people ought to be vaccinating their kids. But mm -hmm. how? what do you tell people who are getting information from the wrong side? Um, I think a lot of the conversations about something like that will be more effective in person. Uh, something Maggie and I have almost joked about throughout this project is that the further along we get into social media, very, 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 very low-tech things will start to have a much bigger impact because the norm will shift away from and has shifted away from person-to-person -person conversations to these kind of comment stream echo chambers. Some, and, and I teach the history of epidemics, and so I work with college students you know, every semester, and I take them through the history of variolation and inoculation and how things, you know, developed and what went wrong and what went right and how to actually have a conversation about what risk means in this context. And, you know, I take students through some, you know, you know, relatively controversial material. We aren't having a conversation that says there's no risk involved, but we have a conversation that says the risk is very slight compared to the alternative, which is to die of an epidemic disease, but my students also understand, you know, yeah, most people survive from measles, but their heart ventricles don't do well after, and their neurological system doesn't do well after, so we're not actually trying to prevent measles so much as your kid dying of a heart attack when they're 15, and, you know, the way that we have the conversation on social media tells so little of the actual story mm -hmm. that um, people that I come across that I have a relationship with um, those are people I'm trying to have conversations with in person where there isn't an audience. It's just the two of us. And I don't think that in most social media comment sections, I will change anyone's mind despite the fact that I do teach on these topics professionally because confirmation bias is so huge on social media. So, um, but I, but I do know people in my family and people in my community that do approach it differently. And mm -hmm. like I said, I very much go low tech and grab a coffee and talk to people in that context. <laughs> um, but there are organizations that have people who are professionally trained to enter into these comment sections and, you know, try to provide sound, you know, feedback. I, whether or not that's effective, I think, you know, I don't really know. What do you think, Maggie? Well, I mean, I think we we found it fascinating that not in vaccine conversations because we didn't cover cover that, but um, you know, we would see people identify. Well, I'm a nurse at Novant, or you know, I'm a doctor at this practice in these groups, and you know, and, and Bethany and I would you know have good conversations about this because people are also giving advice and identifying their expertise and potentially putting their jobs at risk like this is what you need to do to get around the um you know the breastfeeding mandate at your hospital if you bring formula you know like so they would they would be saying you know what their their level of expertise is and then um and you know so how are hospitals how are healthcare organizations working with their members in order to either stop this or 
to say this is the direction things are going and you're allowed to do this and this is considered you know on time or you know like part of your job to be entering into these conversations so it's fascinating and i'm kind of curious where it's all going to go maggie quinlan and maggie quinlan and bethany johnson are the authors of you're doing it wrong mothering media and medical expertise thank you both very much that was uh, time went by awfully quickly Thank you. Ever notice when you have a baby, everyone seems to give you advice? From your mother-in-law, to your own parents, to your friends. But when it comes to the important stuff, like immunizations and protecting my baby's health, I trust my baby's doctor. She really listens to my questions about shots, gives me great information, and she works with me to make sure my baby gets protected. And that's something even my mother-in-law can agree with. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, I'm completely convinced that my son has an eating disorder. When he was little, he was always a little on the heavy side. About 11, right when puberty hit, he suddenly started dieting. At first, I was proud of him for taking charge of his own weight. He looked really good and seemed happier with himself, but he kept right on dieting to the point that he began to look skinny. To make matters worse, he's talking about wanting to lose even more weight. Thinking our son might be really sick, my husband and I took him to our pediatrician, who said that he was fine, and told him to put on some weight. I asked whether our son could have an eating disorder, but the pediatrician just smirked. What should we do? Two things. First, get yourself a new pediatrician. Of the 30 million people in the U.S. who suffer from eating disorders, about a third are male, as are about half of those who binge eat, purge, abuse laxatives, fast, and do other extreme things to lose weight. But far too many medical professionals, including your pediatrician, are too attached to the idea that girls and women are the only ones affected. Second, find a mental health professional who has experience treating eating disorders. As with pediatricians, many therapists have trouble acknowledging that boys and men can be affected. Finding the right mental health professional will be essential if your son needs extended outpatient or inpatient treatment. Most eating disorder programs and facilities don't accept males. That, of course, makes it harder for boys like your son to get the treatment they so desperately need. Third, talk to your son. He may actually realize that he's got a problem, but may be resisting asking for help because he's internalized the eating disorders are for girls message and worries that people might see him as less than masculine. While we're on the subject of conditions that most people think affect only women, I want to mention osteoporosis. We all know that being overweight increases men's risk of developing high blood pressure, diabetes, and cardiovascular problems, including heart attack and stroke. But a study recently presented at the North American Society for Radiology found that being overweight, especially if that excess fat is worn around the middle, greatly reduces men's bone strength and makes them more prone to fractures and breaks. And while osteoporosis in women affects mainly those over 60, in men, the effects are apparent even as young as 34. 
and a just-published study in the Journal of the American Osteopathic Association found that men 35 to 50 were slightly more likely than women the same age to suffer from osteopenia, which is a loss of bone density that's not quite as severe as osteoporosis. However, untreated, osteopenia can develop into osteoporosis later in life. Treatments start with lifestyle modifications, including increasing exercise and calcium intake, and reducing alcohol consumption and cigarette smoking. If you've got a comment or a suggestion or uh, anything at all for us here at Positive Parenting, please do send it to us. You can reach us through our website, mrdad.com, and we do try to answer as many emails as we possibly can. While you're there, you can also check out archives of our podcast that you've been listening to, and you can find out a lot of information about my many books on fatherhood and parenting and a lot of other resources. It's all at MrDad.com. We'll be back next week with another brand new show for you. Hey, but don't go yet because, as you well know, there's a lot more of this Positive Parenting show coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this. From the MrDad.com radio network. Careful at the party, hon. Remember what we talked about? I know, Mom. No alcohol, right? Yeah, I know. Honey, seriously, I know you're in high school now, but you're still too young to drink. And you're still my daughter. I don't want anything happening to you. I know. I know. Really? Drinking is different with kids. You're still growing. You're still developing. It messes with your judgment. I know. Teenagers know everything. So talk about underage drinking before they know it all. Before they're teens. And you could do things that, honey, trust me, if you drink, you could do things you don't really want to do that I don't want you to do. Yeah, Mom, I know. Listen, I'm just trying to protect you, all right? If you're a grown woman, it's different, but you're not. I know, okay? I know. Start talking before they start drinking and keep talking. To learn more about the dangers of underage drinking and what to say to your kids, go to StopAlcoholAbuse.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome to the second part of today's positive parenting show. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Thanks for staying with us. You lie awake at night worrying, worrying some more, worrying that you're worrying too much and then worrying that you'll never be able to stop worrying. Even if you're not a worrier, Stress can hit you like a wave multiple times a day and follow you into your sleep at night. It's like the movie Groundhog Day. Lather, rinse, repeat the next night, and wake up every morning beating yourself up for being unable to fight this thing that has overtaken your life for so long. This thing called stress. We're not just stressed here in America. We are so stressed that our nervous systems respond to everyday events as if we're living in the war zone of a third world country, scrounging to feed our families while ducking under a continuous hail of bullets. Even though we aren't under threat, our nervous systems act as though we are. We could be peacefully arriving five minutes late to events or calmly returning a phone call later if we don't answer when it rings or reminding our brain that it's making mountains out of molehills as we fret over things that really aren't a big deal. But most of the time, we don't. Why not? 
In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with an expert on stress who's got an idea about how we can switch off the worrying and get on with our lives. I'm Armin Brott. We'll start talking about the stress switch when Positive Parenting continues right after this. All right, class. Let's hear what everyone did this weekend. Jill? Well, I raised my older sister to a big oak tree. It was at least a hundred years old. My mom said I must have set a record or something. And then we went down by a stream and perched up on this huge rock and saw all of these little minnows swimming around way below us. And then I rescued my little brother from an evil slug king who was guarding him at the bush fortress. And my sister and I brought him back to our super twig fort for safety. And then we all laid out and told stories until it got dark. And the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? Yeah. We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Anyone want to come this weekend? Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week and find the fun, adventurous you. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Amy Sarin, who's the author of The Stress Switch, The Truth About Stress and How to Short-Circuit It. Amy, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I think we need to start with some basics here. What is stress, and what's the problem with it? So I love that we're starting with basics because stress is very misunderstood. I think so. stress it totally is. We are way overcomplicating it. I'm a neuropsychologist, and everyone is misunderstanding stress. They think stress is something that happens to you, and it's actually your body's moment-to-moment reaction to a trigger. And a trigger could be a loud sound or a thought or a pain sensation from your body or seeing somebody that you've just had a fight with. So any kind of sensory trigger can set off your stress switch. And if you think about it in those simple terms, then we can actually apply the correct things to lower stress and keep ourselves healthier and happier. And stress just by itself, though, is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, if you're running away from a lion or if there's a car about to hop up the curb and get you, that stress is going to save your life, right? It's when when it lasts for long periods of time. That's when we have problems. Right. Ideally, we want to go into fight or flight. We want our stress switches to be 10 because uh, in those situations where we really have to fight or flee, you know, for our lives. Um, But in modern day society, um, most of us aren't going through that on a daily basis, but our nervous systems are still reacting as though we are. And so if we can keep our stress switches low when it's not necessary that they be high, then we have a much better life. Um, We have better health. And we're more present for our relationships, and everything is is much improved. And tell us a little bit about the stress as it applies to parenting. I mean, there there's so many different places where there can be stress. I mean, there's the stress of getting the kids ready in the morning, and but there's also the kids' stress about being hassled to get ready in the morning. And how how what what are some common areas that parents are likely to encounter stress or have to deal with it? 
Yeah, certainly, you know, just the added um, schedule <laughs> and running kids around can add a lot of stress, a lot of time pressure, a lot of overwhelm. And I think the main thing that parents come to me with is they, they mismanage their kid's stress. So when a kid is tantruming, when their stress switch is on high or they're basically in fight or flight, people, teachers or parents will try to reason with the kids. And you have to think of your stress as a scale of zero to 10. And if the stress is higher than a six or a seven, the actual areas of the brain that process language are shutting down. And so you cannot reason with a child or an adult who is too stressed out. And so you need a neuroscience hack to kind of bring that stress down. So you can infuse humor in that moment. Fake farting works for little ch children <laughs> or doing something hilarious. That will create a pattern interrupt and they'll come out of fight or flight and then be able to reset and listen to what you have to say or do what they're supposed to do. Um, and then in older kids, we want to not try to um, talk them out of their stress. So stress is a nervous system reaction, but parents are typically trying to use language and reasoning to bring them down. And it doesn't work on adults, so, you know, why should it work on kids? So my book talks about some of the, the neuroscience hacks that you can use that are in the moment that can bring people's stress levels down, and then we can kind of go about our day. Well, give us an example of one of those, a situation and a, a better way to handle things than what we are likely to do in the moment. So there's a therapy called EMDR therapy, and it uses bilateral stimulation. So there's gentle vibrations on either side of the body. And we realize that those vibrations actually instantaneously, in about 30 seconds, can reduce 62% of stress. So you can have a child who's standing there being upset. If they'll let you, you can actually tap on them side to side. That's not quite as effective as having tech devices. So we've embedded technology and technology devices now that are about $160, and you can actually just have the child hold them, they'll calm down, and then you can get back to business. Hmm. Isn't, EMDR, isn't EMDR eye movement, or is that the way that it started? Yeah, it's, uh, it started with eye movements, and then they added um, auditory stimulation and tactile. So in other words, they added vibrations, and then they also added some sound, um, some sound as, as stimulation in the therapeutic context. And we know that that therapy works much faster for PTSD and helping people get over trauma. What we didn't know is that just extracting the bilateral stimulation and devices and using it on a daily basis could actually, in the moment that you're using it, just reduce stress significantly. And so this can be um, really great, I think, in terms of maybe preventing PTSD, um, mm -hmm or also just bringing people back to a lower stress switch number in the moments when they're stressed out. Now, is that something that you can do on your own as a parent or that we could teach our children, perhaps slightly older kids than, than toddlers, uh, to, to be able to do on their own to deal with a stressful situation? Well, what could they do if they don't happen to have a device? I mean, can they tap on their legs? Or, or what, what would that kind of approach look like? So there's something called the butterfly hug, and you can have kids cross their uh, cross their arms across their chest and then tap really quickly on their shoulders back and forth. Or a parent can actually tap very quickly on their kids, and that will help. The The issue with that is, is that someone in, in fight or flight, they might be in fight mode. So if you go to try to touch somebody in that state, they might have a reaction and kids might hit or slap. Mm -hmm. And then the other issue is if kids are a 9 or a 10, 
and you try to tell them to do something, they're just going to yell and get defiant. So it's easier in a lot of cases to use the devices. But if a kid is just sort of stressed out or upset, maybe like a five or six out of 10, they can certainly start to, you know, tap themselves and um, that can calm them down. Um, you can also have them do things like, if it's a small kid, you can just say something very simple that they can process, like chase me. And then you start running and play a game. And if their instinct is to chase you, that gets their body moving and that can introduce a pattern interrupt. But we really just don't want to try to talk <laughs> to yeah, people when exactly. they're too stressed out. It doesn't work. Well, how does it work with teenagers? This is another group. I mean, they're, they're almost by definition prickly and, and they're certainly not going to be interested in getting a hug or in being tapped or <laughs> anything like that, but they but they need some strategies that they can deal with on their own so that, so that whatever it is that they're heading towards doesn't develop into a full-on panic attack. Yeah, so they, they surprisingly do, the teenagers um, love the tech devices because they're kind of cool and it's so instantaneous. If something calms you instantaneously, you will want to use it over and over again. So we've had good success with teens in that. But if they don't have them, um, I think the important thing for teenagers is a healthy base of behaviors. Um, a lot of them are on screens until 2 in the morning, and people think that, um, oh, well, if I put a low blue light filter on my screens, then they're okay, they can be on them. But people don't realize that the overhead lighting is actually disrupting their circadian rhythms. And so when you, if you, we're not sleeping very well as an entire culture, and teens have a delayed circadian rhythm, meaning that they're supposed to sleep in, but they're the ones waking up oftentimes very early in the morning to get to school. And so the, just introducing some hacks for better sleep for teens can lower their stress in general. And then in the moment that if something happens, you know, girl drama or a breakup or, you know, something difficult at school, for example, then um, in the moments when they're not stressed out, you, that's in the moments when you want to process that and teach them some skills and um, some, some good habits to not, uh, you know, obsess about that, to make different meanings. And there's so many great apps out there that can help. Um, there's, you know, the Headspace app and the Calm app if they're willing to try meditation. There's an artificial intelligence robot called Wobot. It's W-O-O-B or W-O-E-B-O-T. And you can actually text it and it will text back to you and help you with cognitive and behavioral strategies. And I have um, a lot of those outlined in my book. But, gosh, doing that on a free app is, is such a gift. So there's a lot out there that we can access to help. I'm talking with Amy Sarin, who's the author of The Stress Switch, The Truth About Stress and How to Short Circuit It. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking to Amy and want to get into a lot more strategies that she's got, the hacks that she's calling them, uh, about stress and what we can do about it and a lot of different kinds of situations and lots of practical stuff for you. So stick around. I'm Armin Brat, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. <laughs> Salagadoola, mechagabula, bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. 
You must be your fairy godmother. <laughs> yes. It doesn't take a fairy godmother to tell you that the right fit means everything. Good heavens, child. You can't go in that. Children under four foot nine need to be in a booster seat because they aren't ready for adult safety belts alone. Many parents miss the important step of booster seats. Maybe you better explain things to him. Booster seats raise your child up so that a safety belt designed for adults will fit and protect them properly. Oh. That does make a difference. Remember that four foot nine is the magic number. And get your little pumpkin there safely <laughs> in a booster seat. Hop in, my dear. Oh, thank you. And like Cinderella, you can live happily ever after. It's like a dream. A wonderful dream come true. For more information, visit BoosterSeat.gov. This has been a message from the U.S. Department of Transportation and the Ad Council. Get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, talking with Amy Sarin, who's the author of The Stress Switch, The Truth About Stress and How to Short Circuit It. Um, I think people have a tendency to think about stress or hacks as, as a cure rather than as a, a momentary resolution possibly or, or minimizer of symptoms that we're not going to be able in our lives to completely eliminate stress, are we? Right. And we don't want to, you know, to your point earlier, we want some stress, stress, uh, moderate stress can motivate us and can help us get through things, but it's the excess stress that we want to cure. It's the unnecessary stress. So if I see a snake and have to run from it, I, need stress in that moment to run away. But once I'm done, I want my body to calm down as quickly as possible because if it doesn't, it stays in an inflammatory state. I'm more likely to get sick. I'm more likely to be irritable. I'm more likely to not be able to learn in school that day or get my work done, remember things. So that's the trick is to only be stressed when it's necessary. So there's acute stress and then there's chronic stress. And how does that, how do the two different stresses affect our bodies and our, our brains? So I would say that chronic stress is just acute stress happening over and over and over again. So if we're looking at stress as it's in the moment, chronic stress just means there are more moments when the body is unnecessarily stressed. And so we want to take that um, that as a problem and create a body and a brain that are not flipping on the stress switch too often and up to too high of a level. And so we need we need a reset to a lower baseline level. Because there are people that walk around, you know, they wake up and their stress switch is at a six out of ten, and they kind of hang out there all day. And then one thing happens and they go up to a ten, whereas someone else whose stress switch is a default of like a two they can actually, if something else happens, it goes up to a four or five. They can stay reasonable, and um, they're a lot less likely to get sick. And, you know, we know that children who go through a lot of stress because of um, unstable environments when they're younger, they have so many more health problems because we're really, there's really no mind, body, and separation. It's all connected. Yeah. Could you give us some more hacks about how adults and kids, for that matter, the can can deal with with just nerves, for example, pre-presentation nerves or 
first date nerves or, or anything like that where, where you just need to be able to calm down to a point where you can be present as opposed to just torturing yourself about things you think are going to go wrong. <laughs> right. So I, I always go back to the touch points, the, wire or the wireless devices, because that's just the easiest thing. And there's a new study that shows that it, a Brazilian adult giving a presentation it actually stabilizes their cortisol faster afterwards when they have those on. And so it may lowering stress can actually help with performance also. Um, and if you don't have something like that, then there's always kind of the tried and true, you know, visualization exercises where if you are thinking of something and your nervous system sets your stress switch on, if you can lower the stress switch while you're thinking about it, then the next time you think about it, your brain is likely to default to a lower stress switch. In other words, if I think about giving a presentation, my stress switch goes up to an eight. But I do some things to calm myself down, and I do that over time, over and over again. That is what's called desensitization. Then after that, if I think about presenting, I might only go up to a two or a three instead, and I'm more likely to have a smooth presentation and not go into full-blown flight or fight fight or flight while I'm in it, that moment. Now, as a neuropsychologist, I like simplest things. I don't want someone to have to come into my office uh, for six sessions of therapy or to have to spend five hours doing this desensitization work. So I prefer these um, quick hacks, but certainly there's many, many ways to lower your stress. And in moments when you're not a six or higher, you can employ breathing strategies, um, you can do positive thinking. You can write things out. Practicing when you're in a uh, non-stressed state can also help desensitize and prepare you for certain things. And what's really important is to know that whenever we're stressed out about something, we're more likely to want to avoid it. So you mentioned a first date. When your nervous system gets really worked up and the stress switch goes on, it actually signals you to avoid that. So you may not ask that person out um, or your child may say, no, I don't want to try out for the sport or for the band because they're nervous. And if we lower the anxiety, they're so much more likely to live into their full potential and take that risk. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, which is exactly why they need to have some sort of relatively easy to access ways of, of calming themselves. I'm just saying I'm using right. calming themselves and that may not be exactly the right phrase, but of of coping with the stress and reducing it in the moment so that they can exactly what you said, live to their full potential or, or try new things and explore new things or not miss opportunities because they're so worried that, that something terrible is going to happen. Yeah. And, you know, another important thing, let's say you can't lower your stress, you know, because we all try positive mantras like everything's OK, I'm not going to die. I just want to, you know just going to ask her out. I'm just going to do this. And you're still really stressed out. If your motivation exceeds your stress level in that moment, you're going to go for it. And when you go for it, then your stress cannot stay at a really high level for really long for most of us. So if you do something really risky or scary or stress provoking, and then your anxiety goes down during that in and of itself produces a desensitization effect. You're more likely to do it again. That's why the first time with something is much harder than the second or third or fourth time. It has to do with your stress switch. So sometimes parents 
think their kids can't do something because they're stressed out. And there are kids that when you put them in this situation, they will stay stressed out the entire time. And that's what we call flooding. And, and then they have to come into my office and I have to undo that. But most of the time, no, that those risks that you're going to take, you know, joining the soccer team, playing your first game, giving a presentation, doing a recital, that in and of itself should produce a desensitization effect and the second, third, and fourth time will be easier. So just getting over that hump and challenging people to go for their goals is sometimes what's needed if they can't calm down beforehand. Now you talk a lot in the book about negative predictions. Explain that a little bit. Is that is that just saying, oh, this just never can work out because I'm not smart enough or tall enough or big enough or whatever? Or it well, goes beyond brain, that? Yeah, our brains aren't passive. Our brains don't just take in information and then kind of do stuff with it. Our brains are actively integrating everything in every moment and making predictions based on that, based on our past, based on um, the how stressed out we are in that moment. If you're more stressed out, you're going to make a, your brain is automatically going to make a more negative prediction than if you're not stressed out. Isn't that interesting? So just by being calmer, your brain is going to be naturally more positive. But these negative predictions um, have nothing to do with reality, but those can really fuel our stress. You know, oh, I'm going to do this, and then this is going to happen. And you don't really know that. So paying attention to these cognitive distortions that we make that can fuel our stress switch is sometimes really helpful in saying, you know, I don't really have any basis to make that negative prediction. Mm -hmm. And um, if I can shift to understanding that I'm not sure and I can meet the moment where it is or think something positively instead, then that might help to lower the stress switch a bit. Now, what about things like hypnosis? Does that work for for dealing with stressful situations, especially repeated ones? Yeah, hypnosis can work. Um, I think that it's faster to use uh, EMDR therapy or bilateral stimulation where, um, again, if you're thinking about, a, a, if you're making a negative prediction in the moment and we can tone your stress down with some method, then the next time automatically you think about that same thing, it's not going to register as stressful again. So these are some of the methods that we can use. And there's there's a lot of different things you can do. Even if you're obsessing about something and you go out and take a run, and it's like keep obsessing it with it while you run, it'll actually spontaneously become more positive because you're changing your neurochemistry through the running, and it probably won't feel as stressful the next time you think about it. Amy Sarin, and it's S-E-R-I-N, is the author of The Stress Switch, The Truth About Stress and How to Short-Circuit It. Amy, have you got a website? Yes, it's um, amysarin.com. Well, that's pretty simple. Okay. Amy, mm -hmm. thanks so much for joining us. Great to have you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.